0: Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Gabriel Creston, Emeritus Professor of Radiology at Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Dr. Creston served as professor and chair of the Department of Radiology at Erasmus University for 24 years. An international ambassador for the specialty of radiology, he is an honorary member or fellow of over 10 international organizations, including the U.S. National Academy of Medicine, the American College of Radiology, the Radiological Society of North America, and National Radiology Societies of China, Israel, Serbia, Romania, France, and Colombia. He is past president of the European Society of Radiology, the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology, the European Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine and Biology, and the Association of University Radiologists Europe. His international leadership and innovative approach to radiology have led to his being awarded with the gold medal from the Asian Oceanian Society of Radiology and the European Society of Radiology. Most recently, he was named Knight in the Order of the Dutch Lion, the oldest civil decoration of the Netherlands. Gabriel, welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having me. It is a great pleasure and honor. You were born in Romania, are a citizen of Germany, and pursued most of your career in the Netherlands. Let's start at the beginning and take it gradually. Where in Romania were you born? I was born in a
1: small city in the northern part of Romania called Baia Mare. Actually, my parents met at university after the war as Holocaust survivors, and my father finished medical school in '52, and then it was already communism in Romania, so he got a job in that northern part of Romania where I was then born. But we moved quite early to the western part because my mother was from that part of the country. Actually, her mother language and my mother language is Hungarian, And my father language is Romanian, so I spoke always at home two languages, with my mother always Hungarian and with my father Romanian. And my mother passed away recently, but I never, over the last 68 years, I never spoke a word with her Romanian and not a word with my father
0: Hungarian. That's remarkable. How did they communicate with one another? They usually spoke Romanian, yeah. (laughs) I see. But it was your mother who insisted that your communication with her would be exclusively Hungarian?
1: I don't know whether she insisted, but Hungary was at that time a little bit more advanced than Romania. So I never went to a Hungarian school, but I was always reading in Hungarian. I was following Hungarian television later on, and that's how we actually spoke Hungarian at home.
0: And you mentioned that you were born in the East, but then moved to the West. How big were the cities or towns in which you were raised?
1: Actually the city where I used to live called Arad, where I spent 16 years of my youth until I started in medical school in 1973. So Arad was something like 120,000 inhabitants. My father was a cardiologist there at the community hospital. He was leading cardiology there. And at the same time, he was director of a nursing school.
0: Your mother, did she work outside the house? No, she studied
1: economics. But after I was born, she stopped working and she dedicated herself to me. I am the only child, so I don't have siblings. Very grateful to my mother what she did for me. She taught me French. She taught me literature. She taught me art. So she was very dedicated to my education.
0: Oh, that's phenomenal. So it sounds like your mother spoke at least three languages? And German too, yes. So as Holocaust survivors, your parents, I would imagine that their young adulthood was very difficult. And even in the aftermath of the war, how did they attain this level of education or was it attained before the war? No, actually, after the war. They both studied after the war.
1: They had very different roots and history. So my mother was from the Western part, and her father, my grandfather, thought that war for Jews would be easier in Hungary. That was absolutely not true, because in Romania it was much easier. But he took her, his two daughters to Budapest. And my mother spent the war years, she was at that time, I think, 15 years old. She spent those years hidden by French nuns in a French school. And actually the last year where deportation started, she was hidden in a cellar of that school, but she survived. My father who came from the Northern part of Romania was also a young guy. He couldn't go to university. He was forced to work, but there were actually no deportations from that part of the country. And after the war, they were all allowed to study. There was a huge wave of Jewish young students who were, during the war years, not allowed to go to university. And that's where they met, one coming from the northeast and the other one coming from the west. And they met in a city close called Cluj.
0: So even within the borders of Romania, there were very different conditions during the war in terms of deportations, your mother being in an area that sounds much riskier than where your father was.
1: Absolutely, because the western part of Romania, called Transylvania, was until 1918 part of Hungary. After the First World War, it was enacted to Romania, to the country that won the war, in fact. But during the Second World War, it was re-enacted to Hungary. And that's where deportations took place late in the war in 44, but not in the Romanian parts.
0: So you mentioned that your father was a cardiologist and also ran a nursing school. To what extent was your exposure to medicine growing up? How did you come to understand what he did during the day?
1: I understood what he did. And I went regularly to the hospital to visit him. And when I got all the... I did some electives or I did some work during the summer holidays in the hospital, but I was not a big fan of medicine at that time. My father was a bad example. He was 24 hours a day physician and he was never at home. He was working day and night and when patients called him during night, he took his bag and he went. So that was not a very positive example for me. I thought that I would have an easier life later on, so during school years, I Tended more and I loved physics and mathematics. So I thought that I will become either an engineer or I will study physics. And it was just in the last year, just before graduation, that I spoke with a number of people and they strongly discouraged me to follow this path. And they said, Why don't you try to do medicine? It would be much better. You have more chances in life. And I was persuaded to do it and I did it. And at that time it was a great competition to enter medical school in Romania. There were thousands of people applying and there was an examination and only less than 5% entered medical school. But I was lucky and I got in and I even studied my first semester
0: before we emigrated to Germany. So let's talk just a little bit more about your childhood and young adulthood before emigrating. In addition to spending a lot of time with your mother while your dad was in the hospital and getting exposed to languages, what other activities interested you as a young man? I think I did everything that could could be done at that time. All kinds of sports, from
1: swimming to cycling, from gymnastics to judo, all kinds of sports. But I studied an instrument. My parents wanted that I learn to play violin. I hated it, but I had to do it. I studied languages. There was a very famous art history teacher in our town, and I took private lessons three times per week in art history, and I loved it. I started at the age of 13, And I went until my emigration at the age of 19, and it was really also to open my eyes towards the splendor of art that was not very close to us because it was not visible in our museums in Romania. And I could only look to images in books, pictures, but that opened really my love to art. Did that make you
0: want to create art? No. I
1: took also some drawing
0: lessons, but I was very bad in that, and I gave up. What do you recall was your first job outside of the home? At the
1: age of 15, 16, I took usually a couple of weeks of jobs in the summer holidays. We had two and a half months of summer holidays. So I tried to do something useful, not for the money because you couldn't earn a lot. And you know, that was communism. You couldn't even spend the money that you earned. So it was more for getting in touch with others. And usually my colleagues at school they all did some summer jobs on the fields. We worked gathering tomatoes in one of the summer holidays. In another one, I worked in a machine factory. But these were small jobs, as mentioned also in the hospital.
0: It's interesting, your point about growing up in a communist society, that it almost sounds like there wasn't as much motivation to work because, as you said, there wasn't anything to spend the money on. So the motivation to work was primarily more social. Absolutely. And what do you recall being your first experience as a leader? Did you take on any leadership roles in school? Absolutely
1: not. If I would have done so, the only leadership positions were in the communist youth movement. And that was not something that was very close to my heart. So actually, I grew up always thinking that we will, at a certain point, emigrate. And I was a double minority, speaking Hungarian and being Jewish, So I didn't really belong to the communistic Romanian society, absolutely not. We had family abroad, and we always wanted to live. just that that was not easy and not possible. It was not like you could leave at any time. So before we emigrated, I have never been abroad.
0: And so your entire family collectively immigrated from Romania?
1: Yeah, my father, my mother, and myself. So that was our family. And that was not easy. The only way to do so was by buying us out. So there were mediators in the West who could mediate with the Romanian government and pay horrendous amount of money for buying out families. And that's what happened. I think at that time it was 45,000 German marks. That was a big amount of money in 74.
0: How was that initiated, the whole decision that at that moment in time, the three of you would immigrate? It was not a one-day
1: decision. I think the decision was taken already 15, 20 years before. We always wanted to emigrate. And that was the moment where we had the chance to do it. I know families who were waiting for the emigration for 25 years and living in a non-furnished apartment with boxes because they expected to leave the country at any time and they couldn't. So it was a difficult situation.
0: So the application to leave and immigrate was made many years before. Through all of your upbringing, you knew that it was a temporary situation where you were and that you would eventually move. It was more a dream and a wish. After waiting so many
1: years, you didn't even believe that it will ever succeed. At a certain moment, it did. And we were lucky. Many others were not. That was not something we were allowed to speak freely about. Don't forget, we were in a dictatorship. So when we were speaking at home, when my parents were speaking at home about this, they would put a pillow on the telephone because somebody could listen. So that was the environment I
0: grew up in. Wow, that is really remarkable. And it seems that it's serendipity that the opportunity to immigrate coincided with your beginning medical school. Absolutely. When I applied for
1: the exam, we already had the feeling, we didn't know for sure, but we were quite close. We had the feeling that it may happen in the next couple of months. We received the approval to leave one or two months after I started in medical school. But my father said, finish your semester, do your exams, and then we leave. And that's exactly how it happened. So I took my exam and I passed the oral exam. And I told to the professor of anatomy that I say now goodbye because in three days we will leave the country. And he was amazed. It was a funny situation, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I would imagine. And so how was it then that you had to transition into medical school in Germany, in Cologne? How did you choose Cologne or did Cologne choose you? What was that process?
1: Actually, my parents chose Cologne, not immediately. There was a first deception when we arrived that I couldn't enter medical school immediately because the Germans didn't recognize my graduation. So I had to go back to school. I had first to learn German because I didn't speak German at that time. And after being quite fluent in German, I tried to restart medical school, but realized that I had to redo my graduation. I had to go to school for six months, retook my graduation quite successfully because Romanian schools were quite good. So my level of education was at least comparable with the level of the German students, And that's how I re-entered medical school and restarted medical school in 1975. So I always said I lost two years in my education, but I gained a whole new life.
0: It is remarkable how quickly you learned the German language and then ultimately were able to satisfy all the requirements for medical school entry in such a short period of time. Thank you. You know, I always
1: say if you are born with a small language that it's spoken only in small parts of the world, then you have to learn other languages. I learned after my two maternal and paternal languages, I learned French and English and then German, and later on Dutch, obviously.
0: Was it then, once you completed these requirements, straightforward to enter into medical school or was it also very competitive
1: that was not competitive because in germany it depended only on your grades from the graduation and my graduation was exceptionally good so i had a very good grade there and i entered immediately my father decided at that time because they have relatives and friends in cologne that he will settle in Cologne and he opened a private practice. So it was obvious that I will go there because I applied in Paris for the university and I was accepted by my parents couldn't afford to send me there. So I studied in Cologne. I stayed mainly at home, again, because of not being able to afford anything else. But I had a couple of very good years where I met among the immigrant community, my wife. We married in our last year of medical school. She also studied
0: medicine. That is fantastic and fortuitous. I'm intrigued. Your father was able to pick up a private practice in Germany almost right away. Nowadays, particularly in the United States, for physicians practicing in other countries to come here to practice, it requires a substantial period of retraining. There wasn't similar requirements at that time?
1: Honestly, that was one of the reasons why we went to Germany, because Germany was one of the few countries in the world that recognized Romanian credentials. So my father could start working right away. He spent, I think, a year and a half in a hospital not far away from Cologne, where he was an attending physician. He got accustomed to the German healthcare system, and after that, he opened a private practice.
0: Now, you spent 15 years at the University of Cologne obtaining your medical degree, radiology training, and a PhD. Take us through that journey. In Germany,
1: it takes six years, so I spent six years in medical school. I did some electives abroad. Don't forget, I was a young emigrant, so I discovered the world. I never had a chance to go abroad from Romania, and I did so a lot more when we were out in the West. So I traveled through Europe as much as I could. I spent all my free time traveling and enjoying everything that this new environment this new culture could offer me and then finishing medical school our intention was to come to the us that was our dream absolutely and i applied in a couple of places and i got offered a number of positions in the us but our first child our son was on the way and we married as mentioned in the last year of medical school And my wife went to the final exam of the medical school, already pregnant. So we decided that it's maybe better to stay for another couple of years because the social environment was such, parents were there, they could take care of the child when we were working. So it was practical to stay. And then this chance didn't come back again. When did you decide to become a radiologist? Yeah, actually, I was programmed probably because I saw what my father was doing, but also because I definitely liked it. I was programmed to become a cardiologist and I did my dissertation in cardiology and I had very good relations with the head of the cardiology department in Cologne. And I applied for a position in my last year of the medical school and he said, you know, I will not have immediately an opening when you are finishing. I was finishing by the end of the year. Why don't you go for a couple of months in radiology? Because that would be helpful for you, and having some basic radiological knowledge could be helpful so in cardiology. So I did so and they took me and I started in radiology and I had a very, very inspiring teacher there, Professor Peters, known to some of the older American radiologists who was trained and did a couple of years at Mallinckrodt in St. Louis. Very, very inspiring and good radiologist who became later on the head of radiology in Münster in one of the other cities, universities in Germany.
0: I bet the chief of cardiology had some regrets at that point. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) In addition to your medical training and your radiology training, you earned a PhD. How common was it to pursue a PhD amongst your classmates? Not very common. I would say that's less than 5% of those
1: who are in training who in parallel are pursuing such an academic career. In Germany, it is called Habilitation, and it's really an academic achievement it's not only based on your scientific work, but also your teaching abilities and on your overall curriculum. In addition to a book that you have to deliver, you also have to show that you have already some academic achievements and you have a good curriculum.
0: So it sounds like early on, you identified academics as the type of practice and profession do you wanted to pursue? What led you to choose academics? I don't know if I really knew that,
1: but as an immigrant, you try to keep all your opportunities open. So what could you do as a radiologist? You could stay in a larger hospital, in a non-academic hospital, or you could go into a private practice, or you could stay in academics. So I was open for all three possibilities, and that's why I started very early on to do also some scientific work. And over the presidency years, I was publishing, in average, five papers, six papers per year. And I learned that it's a lot of fun to satisfy your curiosity, to look into new things, and particularly to learn because actually it's not so much about what you discover or the new things that you achieve, but it's about the depths in that very specific area that you can go and you learn a lot by doing that. You know, when I started my training, this mentor of mine, Professor Peters gave me a book that at that time was quite new on the market. It was the Dynamic Radiology of the Abdomen by Morton Myers. And I was fascinated that book. I always told if I would be left on an island alone, and I would be told, to take a book with me, one single book, I would take this book. And it was such a great satisfaction for me that I started to work in this field. And in the second edition, Morton Myers published one or two cases from my scientific work in his book. And later on, I had a chance to meet him and we became friends. And that was extremely rewarding.
0: It's interesting that you call out Mort Meyer's book because I found it inspirational when I first read it as a resident as well. An astounding work, no doubt.
1: Absolutely. It was so new at that time. It was such a different way to look at anatomy, at structures, to take into account also the physiology and how everything could be explained.
0: And that was fascinating for me. In many respects, it focused on the spaces between the structures as opposed to the structures themselves. Publishing five or six papers a year while undergoing radiology training is pretty astounding. And I imagine for those of our listeners who are in training right now, they might be challenged to imagine how that could be possible because radiology is such a vast field to learn. How did you balance learning the depths of clinical radiology with this scientific work?
1: With what we do today and with the quality of research that is required, the things that I did at that time were observational studies, collections of cases, and publishing about rare conditions. You know, we were chasing cases like colon duplications, and if you had a collection of 10 cases, then you... Could write a paper about that. So that was the kind of research that we did. I wouldn't say it was high quality research, but definitely it opened my eyes towards how a paper has to be written. And I gathered a lot of knowledge because then you were reading the literature. I don't know if you remember, at that time, Possessing the references was already a challenge because it was not like today that you went on the web and you had everything at hand. You had to go into the library
0: and look hours and hours
1: to find the right
0: references. And
1: yeah, that was fun.
0: So a key element of earning the PhD was writing a thesis. What was the focus of your thesis? The focus was the new
1: technology at that time. It was magnetic resonance that came in Germany in 83. And I was involved almost from the first day that we even didn't have a system in Cologne. We were traveling with patients to the Netherlands to image our first patients before we got our own system. We were two people in the department who were doing that. One was more focused on the easy part, I would say in insight, the neuroradiological part, because that at least was not moving. And I was focusing on everything else. And that was extremely challenging. The breakthrough came with gradient echo sequences. And my thesis went about gradient echo sequences. And I remember in 1985, I think, when I gave my first presentation at RSNA, on these gradient echo sequences showing that we can produce something that looked at least as T2 weighted images, T2 star weighted images. And in the audience, there were those big cracks, those big names at that time, Jens Fram and Axel Haase, you know, who invented the gradient echo sequences. And they always stated that it's impossible that you only can get T1 weighted ed- I was so afraid of what they will ask and that what they will say, but it was a great experience.
0: Superb. And so after 15 years, you emerge from the University of Cologne. You have your MD, your radiology training, your PhD. What was your perspective on your next step of your career?
1: So in general, if you want to make, and that became over the years, became clearer and clearer to me that I will go more into academics, opening also the avenue to more leadership position. And you were asking before about when did I think about or when did I had my first leadership or steps towards leadership? I think I never thought about leadership as such. But what I realized during my training is that a lot of things in terms also of administration and quality and organization of work and dealing with people at work can be done very differently. So I decided quite early in my career, I don't want to have a boss. I want to be my own boss. And there were two possibilities for that. Either you became a chair of a department or you went into private practice. So when we got our second child, our daughter Ruth, then we needed also money, so I went moonlighting in private practices in the evening, and I earned in two evenings almost the same amount of money that I earned as salary as a resident. And I was supposed between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. to read 20, 30 CTs or MR exams, and it was so boring. It was so terrible for me so unrewarding because everything i loved about radiology was the exchange and the feedback that you got from the referring physicians the multidisciplinary exchange in a conference showing what you have seen and getting a feedback and knowing that your diagnosis was correct or was wrong but that was the most rewarding part and you didn't have that in the private practice in the private practice patients came with back pain And you dictated a report and you never knew what happened with that patient. Were you right? Were you wrong? Did they do anything with that? So I was always going back home and said, I earned some money, but this is something that I don't want to do my whole life. So it became quite clear that I need to become a chair somewhere. That was not so easy. So the next academic step was to change and to go somewhere else. And I had a couple of offers. I finished my residency. I did my fellowship in abdominal imaging and in MR. So I was one of the quite early so-called MR experts. I got a couple of offers, and one of the best offers that I got was at the University of Zurich. So we took our two kids, and we emigrated again. We emigrated to Switzerland with the intention to stay there a year or two or three maximum and then come back in a final position. Actually, it became more than seven or eight years, and the time in Zurich was extremely good. We loved the city. The quality of life was very high. The university hospital was very good. I spent my last two years there as acting chair because, unfortunately, the chair of the department passed away in 1995. So between 95 and 97, I was the acting chair there.
0: So I'd like to go back to a couple of things that you just mentioned. One of them was the principle that you wanted to be your own boss, you know, within the context of an academic practice, because private practice didn't hold sufficient interest for you. What was it that made you decide that you couldn't work for somebody else, even if potentially they were an inspiring radiologist and a great leader?
1: It's a very good question. I think that Early on, I had my dreams and my visions also related to the profession, also related to how I would like to profess radiology, how I would like to interact with others, what do I think about how a report should be written, a lot of organizational things, there was a lot of inefficiency, I thought that the training was not good. Many things could have been done better. So I had my ideas and my visions, but you are never able to realize those ideas if you are not in charge. So I needed to be in charge. I understand. And so when you went to Zurich, how big was the department? The department in Zurich was similar to the department in Cologne. They had, at the beginning, quite a shortage of radiologists. It was a very good quality department, but there were something like 30 people, 30 physicians in radiology. It was separated from neuroradiology in many parts of Europe. Neuroradiology was a different department and the relations were not very good between neuroradiology and body radiology. And I was in body radiology in a leadership position almost from the
0: beginning. I am intrigued by that. You join a well-established, renowned department in Switzerland, fresh out of training. There's 30 other radiologists who are all more senior to you, body imagers. And you become the vice chair and head of diagnostic radiology within four years of your arrival. What led to your rapid promotion amongst all of the others in Zurich who probably also had dreams of being leaders?
1: I was hired because I had a PhD that was a differentiator at that time. So there were two other people who had a PhD and they were together with me at the beginning, more or less at the same level, a little bit more senior than myself. One of these attendings who had a PhD was intending to leave to get himself a leading position somewhere else. And that's what he did actually after two years. And that's when I became then the vice chair of the department.
0: I see. And what were your responsibilities within that role? A lot. At the beginning, I was focusing
1: mainly on the MR environment, both in terms of research as well as the clinic. But later on, as you mentioned, after three or four years, I was running the whole diagnostics part, and I was in charge of the whole clinical operations
0: of the department. So... What would you identify as some of your major accomplishments in those early years? I think the main accomplishments were
1: to get a good team of people around myself and trying to inspire them to good clinical practice and to higher quality research. And this is something that I did in that position and I continued to do in Rotterdam. And I think if I can speak of myself, I think this is what I can do well. I can recognize talent, I can inspire that talent, and I can motivate them to do their best. And my leadership style is a sort of coaching leadership. That's how I would characterize myself.
0: Would you say that that leadership style, that orientation toward coaching after identifying top talent, was something that you realized was innate within you once you began your leadership roles, or was it a competency that you sought to cultivate? Definitely
1: later on in my position in the Netherlands, I think I would not have been successful at all if I wouldn't have followed this concept. But it was not difficult for me because that's how I am, and... I love to work with colleagues and with younger people later on to inspire them and to motivate them. What I usually have is quite a good vision of where I would like to go, where I see the opportunities, where I see the needs for improvement. I pick them up and then try to motivate others to follow me and to do something in that direction. And it seems that I was quite successful with that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Maybe talk a little bit, if you can, about how you think you're able to recognize talented individuals. What sorts of things do you see in them that gives you confidence that investing your efforts will lead to rewards? Again, a very good question, because I wouldn't say
1: that I can recognize in an interview, if somebody is applying for a position, I made the biggest mistakes in recruiting people. Sometimes I recruited exceptionally good ones, but even in my last years as chair of the department, I badly failed. I think for me, there is no way of recognizing the real potential of somebody without working with that person a certain amount of time. It's not necessary a very long time, but at least a couple of months to recognize not only the intellect of a person, but also the capabilities, the willingness, the intrinsic motivation, the balance that such a person has. And all these characteristics contribute to creating somebody who will be successful. I have seen extremely talented people, extremely intelligent people who had problems in their private life and never achieved what they wanted to achieve. So all these pieces contribute to make somebody really an asset for an organization. Not that you can influence their
0: private life as a chair. That's not what I want to say. But I was just going to ask you the extent to which when you brought somebody in who seemed promising and then they struggled, how much effort would you put into helping them course correct and try to get them to realize the success that you had hoped that they would have and overcome whatever shortcomings holding them back? Actually, I would put
1: a lot of energy into that. And I am now retired since a year. I am still mentoring a number of people who are keen to continue the mentoring relationship with me, probably because I am really trying to look also behind the immediate successes and the immediate achievements that somebody has in professional life and to help them to overcome some of their difficulties in managing and everybody's talking about work private life balance and i recognize that for use of today it's maybe even more challenging than it used to be in my use but i am trying to help them to give them a direction how they can cope with these challenges
0: Do you find that there are certain themes that lead to struggles amongst some of the folks that you're mentoring? And if so, you know, what are those themes and what are some of the primary bits of advice that you have offered that you have found most helpful?
1: Later on in my career in the Netherlands, one of the most difficult transitions for young people is from a young scientist, from a PhD students, into becoming an independent researcher. And I have seen PhD students who did their work totally independently, were very creative with what they were doing. But then once becoming a postdoc or an MD, PhD and wanting to continue their academic career, they found it difficult to create their own line of research. And this is a very difficult transition for most of the people. So that's where many are struggling. And that's, I think, where a mentor can encourage them and try to give them some support and some help. And sometimes you need to give them, I wouldn't say money, but you need to give them, let's say, another PhD student who can help them in their first steps of becoming a more senior researcher.
0: Is success in research essentially a prerequisite to becoming a academic radiology leader in Europe?
1: Yes, in an academic environment, it is a prerequisite. You know, you have to be good in research, you have to be a good teacher, you have to be a good clinician and a good manager. There are very, very few such persons who can juggle with all these things. And one of the things that also young researchers have to learn that there is a certain point where you can't do your research on your own. You need a team, you need people with whom you collaborate, and you need people on whom you can rely and trust. And that means that parts of your scientific work needs to be shared with others, delegated to others. You have to give something away, maybe some ideas that you had, and because you cannot do everything on your own. And this is also something that people have to learn. And sometimes it's very difficult for them to learn that.
0: You mentioned about becoming a good manager and inspiring people. One of the transitions I think that we've seen in the role of department chair and radiology leader over the last 15 to 20 years has been from one where the chair has oversight and control over almost all aspects of the practice of radiology to one where radiology is much more integrated into a larger health system and the responsibility of the chair is not only only to the department itself, but to the organization and that bringing resources and capabilities to the department is dependent upon their effectiveness within the larger organization. Within the context of being an effective radiology leader, oftentimes it is the relationships that are forged by that radiology leader with other leaders outside of the field. And you mentioned the struggles that you help young leaders with focus mostly on their achieving research independence. I'm curious the extent to which you find that folks need help in being able to operate within the context of a highly matrixed, multidisciplinary organization for the benefit of radiology.
1: This is also something that I embarked on from the very, very beginning. When I came to Rotterdam particularly, that department was in very, very bad shape. Maybe that was also one of the reasons why I accepted the call to Rotterdam because I said, it's in such a bad shape that you can only do better. The risk was not so high. But then I realized, you know, I took over a department with one associate professor and one PhD student. That was the whole science that existed at that time in Rotterdam. And when I left, we had 11 full professors and many more senior faculty and 120 PhD students. But what I realized, if you are small and unimportant, and particularly in a specialty that is a service specialty, let's be honest, radiology is deserving other clinical specialties, the way towards improvement and success is in collaboration, in looking up the boundaries of your specialty and your profession and looking across and trying to collaborate with others. I remember that my first recruitment in Rotterdam was Miriam Hunig. She is a radiologist and epidemiologist. We recruited her between the department of epidemiology and radiology. And at that time, the dean said, that's impossible. You cannot have somebody with a double affiliation in two departments, particularly at the level of a professor. So it took us a year to convince him that this is the way forward. And since then, I had many, many faculty who had double and even multiple affiliations because these collaborations are extremely helpful. So, yes, operating in such an environment means that you have to serve your colleagues, but also to strongly collaborate with them.
0: You've alluded to your transition to Rotterdam several times. I want to begin to focus on that. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that as you mentioned with the untimely passing of the chair of radiology in Zurich that you were selected and promoted to serve as the acting chair and in that role as acting chair was it in your mind that you would hopefully become the permanent chair in Zurich or were you at that moment, already thinking it's getting time for me to go somewhere else. Honestly, I was dreaming of the potential opportunity to become a
1: chair in Zurich. It was a good place. I had a extremely good team and particularly in these difficult times of an acting chairmanship where all the others tried to take bits and pieces away from radiology from this department in a difficult position. We were defending radiology and it was a very productive and very good time with very nice people, nice colleagues who were very helpful. And I was dreaming that maybe I could have a chance as a foreigner to become chair in Zurich, but I didn't. My background was at that time in quite a xenophobic environment. It was not something acceptable. Born in an Eastern European country with a German passport and having a different religion, that was not something that came into account for them. I remember a year after I left Zurich having another chair, I met the then director of the hospital at RSNA, and he said, wouldn't you come back? And I said, no, thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, one door closes, another door opens, as they say. And your move to the Netherlands and to Rotterdam to become professor and chair of Erasmus was the beginning of a success story that lasted for 24 years. And so amongst the opportunities that presented themselves at that point, how was it that you landed in Rotterdam?
1: Yeah, indeed, I had a number of opportunities. I was in 1997 appointed almost at the same time. It came absolutely by chance. I was called by a colleague, Professor Hans Blum, who was at that time a young chair in Leiden and whom I knew from many meetings. He called me and said, would you be interested to come to Rotterdam? They are looking for a chair in radiology. I went home and I told it to my wife and she said, go and have a look. So I flew to Rotterdam and within two weeks I was appointed. At the same time, I was also appointed in Germany at the University of Bochum, not one of the most exceptional and attractive places. We went with my wife and visited both Bochum and Rotterdam. And in Bochum, she said, that's the place where I don't want to live. So then we took Rotterdam. And Rotterdam, you know, I calculated a little bit. It is a big industrial city with the largest harbor in Europe a very striving city, a quite young university, although the name would reflect that it's old, but it's not very old. It's only 70 years old, but with a lot of potential, with a very research-oriented university. And as I mentioned, with a radiology department that was in quite bad shape. So my calculation became true. It's a good place. Everybody kind of knows the name of Rotterdam, and the opportunities in this industrial city and with hardworking people were very positive. However, although it's only less than 200 miles away from Cologne, where I spent 15 years, the mentality and the culture couldn't be more different. And
0: that's something I
1: realized after being there.
0: (laughs) And that's a terrific lead-in to my next question, which is, can you talk about some of the differences that existed between the Dutch and Swiss and perhaps German health systems and how those differences influenced your strategy in building a radiology department?
1: Let me give you a couple of examples. So Dutch healthcare is very regulated. The only specialty that has private practices is the general practitioner and you have to go through the general practitioner to access a medical specialist and the medical specialists are all hospital based there are in the whole netherlands in a country of 17 and a half million people at this moment i think less than 75 hospitals that's the place where you can access second line and third line healthcare but only through your general practitioner so that's the gatekeeper of the system. And the system is of a very high quality. Medicine is practiced at a high level. Technology is at a high level. But the access to healthcare, because regulated and socialized, is quite limited. So particularly at the time when I came to the Netherlands, there were waiting lists. And that was very different from the Swiss environment where a patient who would come to the radiology department and would wait 10 minutes in the waiting room would tell you, you know, doctor, on the other side of the street is a private practice there. I go in and I get it immediately. But in the Netherlands, there were three to six months waiting time for a knee MR, that was very, very different environment. I had difficulties to cope at the beginning with that, to accept it, and to accept this public hospital environment without a private healthcare system. The patient had no choice, in fact, at that time.
0: And so how did you cope? How did you reconcile this big difference and settle in comfortably?
1: I could talk for hours about that because when I came to Rotterdam, the department within the medical school was budgeted. So we had a fixed budget, irrespective of the amount of procedures that we were doing. At the beginning, financially, that was less of a problem because I had a lot of vacant positions. There were not sufficient radiologists at that time, not sufficient techs. So actually, I was always telling to the board that I am paying for the contrast agent with the salaries of the people that I don't have. And that is not right. So it took me five to six years to convince the board that with the increasing demand for imaging, that this situation became worse and worse, the pressure on radiology became worse and worse, and that radiology was considered a sort of bottleneck of the hospital because of our reduced capacity. So the only way to go forward is to change the system and to have a right reimbursement per numbers of procedures. In the hindsight, that's not the best solution we all know because that's paper service or per exam. We have now other systems that are probably better, but at that time, it made income of the department more flexible. I could hire more people, offer them better salaries, and it could increase the size of the department, invest into equipment, and radiology grew over the years like never
0: before. Gaining the trust of the board to... Convince them that it was the right decision to move on from a fixed budget to one that adjusted based upon the size and scope of activity. What would you attribute to that breakthrough? Talking.
1: Coming back to what I said at the beginning, that words have power. At the beginning, I had to learn Dutch, obviously. It was difficult because I was older. I was already about 40, uh, 42 when I came to the Netherlands. So at that age, it takes a little bit more time to learn a new language. Mm -hmm. Secondly, everybody in the Netherlands speaks good English. So I was opening my mouth in Dutch and they were responding in English. The only body that didn't want to talk to me English was the board. So I had to go not only to annual budget conversations and negotiations, but every four months I had to give a report to the board and show how the finances are developing and so on. And at our first conversation, they said, you know, we will not speak to you English, we will speak in Dutch. So I was forced to learn even better and to negotiate with them in Dutch what they experienced as being challenging even for them. Because, you know, if you don't speak the language perfectly, particularly in a budget negotiation or explaining them that there are other ways to reimburse radiology, you try to be as clear as possible. And I was sometimes probably too rude. I was probably too direct. But yes, we changed the system. And actually the radiology department was the first one who changed But then the whole hospital changed to this system and they moved to activity-based costing. So you got paid for what you did. That was the best years of development for the whole hospital.
0: What a great accomplishment. Within a few years of becoming chair, you were named head of Cluster 7. What was Cluster 7 and what were your expanded responsibilities? Yeah, Cluster 7 was the first
1: step towards a theme or a division, a gathering of a number of departments. There are waves coming and going of centralization and decentralization. So that was a wave of decentralization of responsibilities. We had supporting services like HR and IT and finances that were very centralized. And at a certain moment, they were decentralized, but they couldn't decentralize it to 50 departments. They did it to a number of clusters. And I think we had something like 12 clusters, 12 clinical clusters. And one of the clusters was a number of diagnostic departments. And later on, after four years, we merged two clusters and we became the theme, Diagnostics and Advice.
0: And that theme diagnostics and advice for which you became the head maybe just you know restate a little bit what was encompassed within that it's interesting that not only is titled diagnostics but it is also titled advice which is you know a decidedly non medical organizational structural term and it also sort of implies the relationship between those performing the diagnostics and those receiving the information. I wonder if you could unpack a little bit the scope of that theme and its nomenclature. One of the most important
1: functions of a radiologist is being a consultant. I wrote papers about that. I was preaching that to my own faculty. The system is maybe perverse, You get paid for the examination that you did if you deliver a report, a written report. And I always told them, it's not the written report that is so important. It's much more important that you are present at the multidisciplinary conference, that you present the results of your exam and of your diagnostics there and talk with the referring physicians and contribute to the management of the patient. That's about it. That's what we are. We are consultants. Advice comes from advisors, from consultants. So that's why we adopted this name, because we consider that we are not just diagnosticians working in a dark room and delivering a report and an image that somebody else looks to it and reads the report, but we should be consultants. And even if there is no written report, sure, there is always one, but it's much more important to discuss with the radiologist because then you come to a much better management of the patient.
0: Am I reading too much into this or the term advice versus inform? In other words, the head of the theme diagnostics and inform or informing, it seems like advising is just a little bit softer. It's like, here's some information we're providing. You can take it or leave it. We're just advising you versus informing. I wouldn't agree with that. I feel it as even stronger than
1: only delivering a piece of information. I think we advise not on the outcome of the exam, but we advise on the management. So given this finding in radiology and given this clinical context, we advise that you should do such and such. And I think this is much stronger than giving just a piece of information without any comment
0: this opportunity that you helped to create to lead a division of diagnostics that's integrating radiology and pathology and laboratory medicine seems to you know have really fascinating potential and opportunities, but also challenges because of the cultural differences that exist amongst the specialties. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to try to bring these different disciplines together under one roof?
1: You might remember that I am one of the strong supporters of the idea of integrated diagnostics within the IS3R, the International Society of Strategic Studies in Radiology, we organized a meeting back in 2011, so it's more than 10 years ago. The theme of the whole meeting was integrated diagnostics. I am a very strong believer in that. I am a strong believer of making radiology a science, going much more into quantitative imaging into biomarkers. And if you are talking about quantification and exact measurements, then you are very close to all kinds of other biomarkers. Then it makes a lot of sense to integrate those biomarkers and extract much more knowledge and much more predictive power. From the managerial part, we were always asked within those teams to collaborate So clear. It was for me absolutely a given that having a theme, diagnostics and advice, having this vision that, by the way, the leadership of other departments also shared with me, particularly the head of pathology, that we should integrate. There is a saying, culture eats strategy at breakfast. The cultures couldn't be more different between radiology, pathology, microbiology, and so on. And the resistance came from all parts. Although I spent the last years of my career fighting for this concept, of which I am still absolutely convinced, we were not very successful with the implementation. At the beginning, we didn't have the sufficient technologies that could support it. So there were no sufficient support from the IT systems. I think that you need integrated clinical decision support system and stuff like that. But later on, we developed those things. But the resistance was from the side of the physicians. The radiologist said, you know, I am so busy. I have so much work. Why should I bother with the results of pathology? The pathologists at the beginning were not digitized. Now they are more and more digitized. But then they are afraid that they will be taken over by radiologists because at the end of the day, they are also only producing images. So they are reluctant. And the most resistance and reluctance comes from the referring physicians. And I wouldn't have expected that. But they have the feeling that they are giving up their own power. They said, What? You are thinking instead of us? We are those who are thinking. We are requesting an exam and you are just doing. That's how they are thinking at the moment. And the major resistance comes from there.
0: You know, in particular, when you speak of the referring physicians, it seems like if you have the ability to pull together an integrative diagnostics department that is able to deliver on the promise that you just described. Then it's a matter of conducting a scientific investigation to establish the value proposition of that integrative diagnostics approach versus the let the clinicians make their decisions themselves. We absolutely did that. First, we tried to identify a number of conditions that would particularly
1: benefit of an integrated diagnostics approach. And then they came and said, you know... We have our guidelines. We don't need an integrated diagnostics because in our guidelines it's written that we should do that that. Okay, so we went and did a study whether they follow their guidelines. Now, they don't follow their own guidelines. They do it in less than 30% of the cases. So we told them, you know, if you would accept our approach, we would be a lot more efficient, faster, better, and so on. Argument not really taken. Then we did a study and combining RADPAT in lung cancer, proved that before the multidisciplinary conference, we could deliver a much more precise diagnosis together than a part of each other. And then next steps should have been done after the conference. So we did it before. Even that didn't convince them. And I think that it is culture. I think they are afraid that they are giving up their power to... Be responsible for the management of a patient.
0: If you take a step back now with all that you've learned by being able to test many hypotheses about building a department of integrative diagnostics and trying to deliver integrative diagnostics in healthcare, if you were going to be starting over now, you know, at the age of 40 with this vision, what steps would you take? to ultimately realize your vision? First, you have to realize that it will take time because culture is not
1: something that you can change from a day to the next and not by managerial measures. It's not sufficient to bring those departments together under one chairmanship or one organizational structure. That will not change their culture. The only thing that helps is educating. And education takes time. You have to educate the diagnosticians, the radiologists, the pathologists to have more understanding for each other, to learn what is the benefit of the other profession, what can they bring to the table, and to teach clinicians that this is the way forward, that then you can deliver a lot more. But you know, it's a lot needed for that. You have to learn about molecular biology, you need to learn about all kinds of omics and to deliver an integrated result that takes into account the biochemical biomarkers, the genomics, the proteomics, and the imaging, and then deliver something that is much more precise and much better. But again, it takes time to educate the people that there is a tremendous benefit in this approach.
0: What role do you think the rapidly developing field of machine learning might play in helping this transformation? This kind of
1: integration, to my opinion, can be only performed by a computer. A human brain is exceptionally good in reading visual signs, in interpreting visual signs, in making associations between what you have seen years before and what you are seeing now in an image and make a correct interpretation in a certain context in a clinical context. But when it comes then to integrate data from biochemistry, from genomics, from proteomics, then there are limits for what the human brain can do and what the human brain can extract as a prediction for the right therapy, for the right management, for the right outcome, for the prognosis of the patient. And that's where the computers can be extremely helpful. And if you want to have integrated diagnostics and want to offer a certain support and also an education, you need an integrated clinical decision support system that tells them that if you have this clinical context, then you better order this order set of exams and then something is done in the diagnostic departments, in the integrated diagnostic departments. But these decision support systems today are static. They are filled with knowledge, today's knowledge that we all know that tomorrow will be already, I wouldn't say obsolete, but there will be a lot more new knowledge. So you have to make this clinical decision support systems dynamic. You have to make them dynamic and feed them with the local knowledge because there are local preferences, local possibilities, local technologies. In one department, you have more MR systems than CT systems for just giving you a simple example. So you have to adopt that. Your population may be different from another hospital. So feeding the system with your best outcomes, that would be my dream, to have a dynamic clinical decision support system based on your own best practice outcomes and changing it from day to day and giving you the best solutions.
0: You have been active in a number of radiology societies, including serving as president of the European Society of Radiology, the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology, the European Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine and Biology, and the Association of University Radiologists Europe, which you founded. I'd like to explore, regrettably briefly, some of these organizations with which many of our listeners may not be familiar. Let's start with the big one, the ESR. Most of our listeners are familiar with the ACR and the RSNA. What is the role of the ESR amongst international radiology organizations?
1: So it is the overarching radiological society in Europe, and the European Society of Radiology has two types of memberships. It has individual members all over the world. It is a global society, and I don't want to be unmothers, but it is by far the largest society of radiology with more than 120,000 members. And it has also national societies and subspecialty societies as institutional members. It considers also the different national objectives and cultures, the different objectives of the subspecialty societies, but also of the individual members. It organizes the very well-known second largest radiological meeting in the world after the RSNA, the ECR, in Vienna every year. The society was founded when I joined the leadership. It was the European Association of Radiology and the European Congress of Radiology that were two separate organizations and we worked hard in the first couple of years within the leadership to merge these two organizations into one society and making the Congress the Congress of the society. And we are always talking within the society about the one house of radiology in Europe that is representing what in the U.S. is represented by ACR and RSNA, maybe together the professional aspirations of the radiological community, as well as the science, as well as the education. We are producing journals. We are producing an uh, European board of radiology, so examinations at European level. And the society has been extremely successful over the past 30-something years of its existence. As president of the ESR,
0: what accomplishment makes you most proud? My
1: major contribution, I would say, to European radiology in general was that I was given a task to represent research within the radiological society and the community. And that led to the establishment of the European Institute for Biomedical Imaging Research in 2006, an institute that is located in Vienna, and it is a service and support organization for collaborative, multidisciplinary, pan-European research that didn't exist before. The organization became extremely successful. I am still, until the mid of this year, probably, its scientific director. I used to be in the shareholder assembly when I was president of the ESR, but I became the scientific director of Iber. And it is still my baby. And the organization was able to gather funding for many important, collaborative, multidisciplinary and multinational studies in Europe. We gathered over the years more than 165 million euros in funding for large projects where many, many scientists around Europe are collaborating and are making their big steps towards producing better fundamental research as well
0: as in clinical applied research. It's a tremendous achievement, a tremendous one indeed. Am I correct that you also were responsible for establishing the first international day of radiology? I wouldn't claim that as my personal achievement at
1: all. I think it were others, but it happened, I think, for the first time during my presidency.
0: I see. I'd like to also ask you about the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology. What is the IS3R or the ISSSR and how did it come to exist? It is a very special society,
1: very dear to my heart. It has been established by uh, late Alexander Margulis, whom I admired and many of the audience probably still remember and know as a young radiologist during my residency. I was reading his books on abdominal radiology, and I was dreaming of once going for a couple of weeks to San Francisco at that time to visit his department that was the mecca of radiology in the 80s and 90s. And then I had the chance to meet Alex and to become friends with him, and I would consider him as one of my most important mentors during my career. Close friend and an absolutely extremely inspiring personality. I'm telling this story because he is the father of IS3R. He started with a series of meetings that were called the Oxford meetings in the 80s and 90s. Ideas started even earlier to focus on issues that were not necessarily. Clinical issues, but were directed towards cost effectiveness, management in radiology, leadership in radiology. And that was how this society came into existence. Out of these first two or three meetings that took place, a small society was established by Alex and the number of people. I had the chance to be a member of the society almost from the beginning. Membership is by invitation only. It is the key opinion leaders in our profession, both leaders of academic departments, as well as eminent scientists, researchers. The very particular thing about the society is that we are discussing strategic issues in our profession, but not only among ourselves, but also with the adjacent industry. So I think we as a technical profession are very much dependent on the developments and innovations that are produced in industry. So emerging imaging technologies, the improvement of the imaging technologies, but Also collaborating with this industry to determine the future strategies like the adoption of digitization, of standardization, of now adoption of data science and artificial intelligence. These are eminently important topics that we discuss among ourselves and with industry in the hope that we can influence the developments in our profession.
0: You served as president of the IS-3R for four years. What did you strive to accomplish through your leadership of the IS-3R?
1: I was extremely honored and humbled that I became a president of the society. Usually the term is only two years and I became past president, but the then successor in the presidency took a very different job that didn't allow him to dedicate his time to this presidency. And I was reactivated as president. So that's why I was president for four years. But I was doing actually in all societies where I was present. I tried to structure society activities, to professionalize societies, strengthen leadership and organization of societies to define their scopes and aims. I worked both in ESR and then IS3R on renewing statutes, brainstorming about future strategies, and... I think because I usually don't like to do things halfway, so I dedicate my energy and my time to those things where I am involved in. And I did so both in ESR
0: and in IS3R, and I think it has some small effects. You recently stepped down from your role as professor and chair and now serving as an advisor for, by my count, at least 10 or more startup companies. Tell us a bit about the portfolio of companies that you're working with and the scope of what you're contributing. I think it's exactly
1: 10 years ago, we established a spin-off company from the Department of Radiology at Erasmus Medical Center, a spin-off company that at that time was mainly involved in image processing out of a large group within the department that is involved in image processing and providing machine learning tools for assessment of specific biomarkers in measurements in images. And that was the spinoff. And I was bored of this startup company for all the years until we exited the company successfully. Actually, on the day when I left the hospital a year and uh, months ago, we exited this company. We sold it to a large chain of radiologists quite successfully. And it was tremendous fun to see how this company moves fast, how these young, talented people are achieving something and how I, as an old professional, can have some added value to them. They know a lot of things much better than I know, but I think my experience, my connections, my insight into the clinical world, into different worlds due to my past, can be helpful. And that inspired me. And absolutely, I didn't want to stay idle after stepping down as chair of the department But I also didn't want to stay in the way of my successor. We had a very nice and very smooth transition. I have the best successor I could imagine. It was my wish candidate. I promised him and I promised myself that I will not stay in his way. He can always ask me for anything he needs, but I will go there. I will be in the department only if he asks. So that's exactly what I do. So I had to look for alternative activities. And this experience with this company was so rewarding and inspiring that I decided to work with a number of startup companies and I'm doing so. Most of those are in the field of imaging, developing AI algorithms in different areas. But there are also companies now in digital pathology. There are companies in the field of new medical
0: technologies. Yeah, it keeps me busy, but it's also very, very exciting. That's superb. Superb that you are broadening the scope of influence, and I'm sure that every one of these companies really highly values the experience and perspective that you bring in advising them. Thank you. Leadership can be stressful, and you've done so much and have been so active. Over the years, what have you found to be most effective in helping you to unwind and recharge? Oh, I can easily unwind and recharge. I usually tend to work
1: long hours. I spent during my whole life 12 to 14 hours in the hospital. But when I go home, usually I'm so tired that I cannot work anymore in the evening hours. But, you know, I have a wonderful family, two wonderful children who are now not only grown-ups, but our parents themselves. They used to live a couple of years abroad, and one of them, my daughter, is still living abroad. My son came back to the Netherlands just last year, and we have five wonderful grandchildren now. Between the age of 3 and 11, they keep us really busy. So, yes, I can easily unwind, but I love traveling. We I have a house in the south of France and we enjoy that environment very much and we enjoy to be there with our grandchildren and our children. I have a bunch of hobbies for which I didn't have sufficient time in the past 40 years. I hoped to have more time now, but it turns out that I'm still busy and maybe busy with other things, but I will never get bored.
0: What are some of those hobbies that you're hoping to pursue? One of the big hobbies is
1: art. We are art collectors. Luckily, my wife and I have very similar tastes. We love to go to exhibitions, to museums, to art fairs to auctions and we buy art, not expensive art, but we have quite a nice collection in the meanwhile and we love to do that. But I love to read. I am very interested in cultural differences. So I'm reading about the roots of these cultural differences in European history, for instance, how different people can be even in the closest geographical vicinity due to these different cultural roots that are deeply embodied in the history of their respective regions. I love to cook, I love to eat, I love to travel, we love to hike. So hopefully we will stay a couple of more years healthy and we can enjoy some of those hobbies.
0: So many opportunities. You mentioned that you enjoy reading. Are there any books that you have recently read that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Yes, I am reading now a very interesting book and it's called The Dawn of Everything. It's about the beginnings of mankind and a very different view on how civilization developed, how we moved from being hunter-gatherers to an agricultural society. And it's a different view. We always thought that civilization started with the development of agriculture, and it seems that it's not true. That It started even in the foraging or undergatherer societies. The book is written by an archaeologist and an anthropologist together. I can only highly recommend it.
0: What advice would you give to a young physician who is inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership? To have a vision, to have a dream, and to go for it. To go for it with
1: all you have, I would say. Don't be disappointed if you encounter challenges and setbacks. That's normal. That always happens. But go for your dream. And if you really have a dream and you want to achieve that, you may really achieve it.
0: Professor Gabrielle Creston, I want to thank you for sharing with us a remarkable journey that has taken you through tremendous experiences and accomplishments. And I'm very appreciative that you've joined us today on Taking the Lead. Thank you very much, Jeff. It was a
1: great pleasure and an honor. Thank you.
0: Taking the lead as a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast. To Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie call for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, Thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N, or using the hashtag R-L-I Taking the Alternatively, send us an email at R-L-I I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.